Oh, most loving Jesus, deign to let me pour forth my gratitude before thee for the grace thou hast bestowed upon me in giving me to thy holy mother, that she may be my advocate in the presence of thy majesty and my support in my extreme misery. Alas, O oh Lord, I am so wretched that without your dear mother, I should certainly be lost. Yes, Mary is necessary for me at, that, at thy side. And everywhere that she may appease thy just wrath, because I have so often offended thee. That she may save me from eternal punishment of thy justice, which I deserve. That she may contemplate thee, speak to thee, pray to thee, approach thee, and please thee. That she may help me to save my soul and the souls of all others. In short, Mary is necessary for me. Mary is in me. Oh, what a treasure. Oh, what a consolation. And shall I not be entirely hers? Oh, what ingratitude. My dear Savior, send me death rather than such a calamity, for I would rather die than live without belonging entirely to Mary. That is a prayer written by a saint of the Roman Catholic Church, Louis de Montfort. And last week, as I was driving down on Main Street, I was driving north on Main Street, I passed one of our local Roman Catholic churches, and I saw a sign on the fence. I don't remember what it said word for word, but the gist of it basically said, our nation is in a terrible place. We need to pray to Mary. She is our hope. Is this true? Is our nation and our world, I think we would all agree, is in shambles. Is Mary our hope? Are any of the saints of God our hope? Are any of the saints, in other words, the hope that God has given us to put our hope in? If not, then who has God given us to put our hope in? That's what we're going to talk about today. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7? First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. When you have found your place there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 2, thus saith the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, as you know, it is a, a regular part of our liturgy to do what we, in fact, did today, 
which is to pray for the nations at our church. We pray for the nations. We pray for political leaders. And I hope now you know that we do not just do that because it was some bright idea that we had. We don't just do that because we think it's necessary. It's not a, an act of worship that we devised. God has commanded us to do it. God commands his churches to offer all different kinds of prayers and all different kinds of thanksgivings for all men. And then he goes on to clarify, especially rulers, especially those who rule over us. We pray for the nations, meaning we pray for all men. And we also pray for the nation's leaders and for our nation's leaders. It could, because keep in mind, 1 Timothy is more than just a personal letter. It is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. But the context of the letter is Paul is writing to Timothy to teach him how to do church. He's teaching him how to be a pastor. So we don't want to read the beginning of 1 Timothy as like some personal command for us to personally go into our rooms and personally pray for our leaders. You should do that. That's great. But what Paul is talking about here is liturgical prayer. He's asking Timothy, as the pastor and leader of these churches, to gather with the church and, and liturgically, as a church, lift up prayers for the nations and for kings and all those who are in authority. This is a commandment for the church. And we might even be able to speculate that perhaps things in our nation are the way they are because Christians have not been faithful enough in this duty. Because notice that Paul believes that our prayers can actually be used by God to accomplish what we're asking. He's not asking us just to throw up prayers saying, pray for the nations, but by the way, it's not going to do anything. It's just an important motion to go through. No, he tells us to pray for the nations so that we might lead quiet and peaceful lives. Paul believes that done, done faithfully, God can use this effectively. Our leaders will get converted, and then they will legislate from a converted place, from a place that bows to the Lordship of Christ, and they will therefore create a landscape, create a political ecosystem where Christianity can thrive, where we can live out our Christian faith and do the things God has called us to do without fear of persecution or um, any other kind of legalities getting in the way. We desire to have Christian leaders in positions so that they will legislate in such a way to make Christianity flourish. That's the biblical job of the state, that they are to enact laws that make practicing and believing our faith legal, not illegal, that protect us not just from the persecution of them, but from our neighbor as well, protecting rights and liberties. So praying for our political rulers can have a very positive benefit for us as Christians and for our neighbors. But I do want us to notice, though, I don't want us to spend all of our time today, although we could talk a lot about political theory from this verse. I think that Paul is getting at something more foundational. While praying for our political leaders has a nice, beneficial, pragmatic effect for us, I think Paul is, wants us to understand that we do it for an even more important reason. It's not just kind of some, uh, we, just, we want our lives to be easier. It's not just a pragmatic thing. But there's a more foundational reason for why we want to pray for all people, especially our political rulers. Look at verses 3 through 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why is it good? Why is it pleasing? Why is it important? Verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It pleases God when we pray for all men. It pleases God when we pray for politicians we pray for the nations because it pleases God. But Paul has thankfully told us why it pleases God. Because he desires their salvation. 
And this is why, this is telling us that when we pray for our leaders, what are we specifically praying for? Their conversion. Their salvation. Because that's what God desires. That's why we're praying. He desires the salvation of all men, therefore we pray for all men. And so the assumption behind this, then, is that not all men are saved. Right? More specifically, behind this assumption is that not all roads lead to heaven. Right? This verse makes absolutely no sense if universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven, or even inclusivism, the idea that every religion will lead you to heaven. If those things are true, this verse doesn't make sense. Right? Why would we pray for men to be converted when the current state that they're in, the current religion they follow, is going to save them? We pray for men because they're not saved. Because the way to heaven is narrow. And that's why verse 5 reminds us of this narrow way. The only way that men get to heaven. Verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds us of the fact that there's only one God. And this is why universalism is not true. This is why inclusivism is not true. The reason false religions cannot save you is because their gods don't exist. It's as simple as that. And so what we see from Paul is monotheism, the idea that there's only one God, is the heart and soul of missions. It's the heart and soul of evangelism. Again, we wouldn't evangelize if, they were just, if every nation had their own God. And the way you were saved is just by following your God. Then we wouldn't pray for all men because they just need to follow their gods. They need to follow their religion to get to their heaven. And we'll follow our religion to get to our heaven. Paul is reminding us there's only one God. So what's the consequence of that? There's only one faith. There's only one truth. There's only one heaven to get to. And because there's only one God, there's only one way to get to that God. And that is Jesus Christ. Because you see, here's the problem. While there is only one God, we have a problem. We are sinners. We have no right to have a relationship with the Holy God. We have no right to enter into His presence. We have no right to pray to Him. We have no right to be saved by Him. So now that we've narrowed faith, so there's only one God, so we need to pray that people will come to believe in that one God, we have an additional problem. Even if they come to believe in that one God, they can't get there because they're sinners. And that's why the one God has provided one way for reconciliation. Sinners come to know the one God through the only means that God has given us, and that is Jesus Christ, God in flesh. God sent his son into the world so that Jesus could mediate between God and man. He is the mediator that reconciles sinful men up to a holy God. And this is why Christ is the only hope of salvation. No one can be saved unless they come to a knowledge of the truth that Jesus is the only way to God. But Paul also reminds us, how did Jesus do this? Simply saying Jesus is the mediator doesn't answer the question, what has the mediator done? to reconcile sinners to a holy God. Look at verse 6. Our mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In order for our sins to no longer hinder us from God, they need to be justly taken care of. And that's the primary work of Christ's mediation. 
Our sins were forgiven because Jesus gave himself for them. This is why we can sing, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men because God desired the salvation of all men. Jesus came to do the Father's will. So we pray for all men because Jesus died for all men. And he did that because God desires to save all men. Very linear logic that Paul is working with here. But I have to take a break from the linear logic because if you are somewhat of a theology nerd of any kind, you know that this has become a very popular passage for people to appeal to to tell you to get out of our church. We are a Reformed church. We teach what is oftentimes called the doctrine of Calvinism, though we don't particularly like that name. And this passage has become sort of a key passage for people to use against the Reformed theology of our church. Let me show you why. Let's read verses 4 and 5 together, and I'll explain their reasoning. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. The argument is made is that these two verses simultaneously refute two of our doctrines. It refutes, first of all, our view of predestination. Because we teach that God only predestined a particular people to be saved. But here Paul is telling us that God desires, what, a particular people to be saved? Or all people to be saved? Right? God desires all people to be saved. How, how can he elect a particular people if his ultimate goal is to save everyone? It doesn't make sense. And then in a similar way, they move to verse 5 and argue that this refutes our doctrine of what we call particular redemption, or sometimes known as limited atonement, that Jesus came to die only for the elect. Because they say, what does this text say? Does it say that Jesus gave a ransom for the elect? Or does it say he gave a ransom for all? Right? So why would we continue to believe the things we do when they are directly refuted by this text? Now, it should be noted as we work through these objections that God saying he desires salvation does not in and of itself contradict his, his decision to only elect some. Because we would say within the one will of God, we can distinguish different kinds of will. There is a will of desire and a will of intent. Right? So just because you desire something to happen, in no way, shape, or form means that you're going to make it happen. You, for example, you might desire, if you're a parent, you have children, you might have a desire that my child would never experience pain. And that's probably a real desire you have. I don't want my children hurt. I don't want them to feel pain. But every time I spank them, every time I discipline them, I am contradicting that desire. Because I think there's something more important than that desire, which is discipline and correction and whatever you say. So you notice it, it, it doesn't actually follow to say God desires this thing, therefore he has attempted to accomplish it. God can desire a universal salvation without actually attempting to accomplish it. So it really doesn't refute our view of predestination even on the surface. It's a logical fallacy there. But I, I want us to move past that because I think there's a better way to understand this text. And it's, we can kind of kill two birds with one stone here. And that is, um, we have to, I, our attempt, our desire is to explain to our brothers who disagree with us here that they are misunderstanding the word all in this passage. They think that Paul means all without exception, while we maintain that Paul means all without distinction. 
There's a difference between all without exception and all without distinction. To be clear, we say that all in these verses refer to all classes or all kinds of men. It's not a reference to every single individual person. And there's a number of reasons why we believe this. The first reason is we think contextually this is obvious. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, and then he clarifies, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul wants us to pray for all kinds of men. He's saying when you pray, don't leave kings out. Don't leave politicians out. Don't leave the rich out. Don't leave the poor out. He wants us to pray for all kinds of men. And this is also, I believe, why Paul, at the end of the text, reminds his readers that he is the Gentile to who? Or the Gentile. I gave away the apostle to who? The Gentiles. Look at verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not in lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why is he reminding them of this here? Because in the context, these are people who have come into an early Christianity, which at this time was still seen as basically a sect of Judaism. And the vast majority of Christians at this time in the world were Jewish Christians, which makes sense. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah fulfilling the Jewish scriptures. And so there was still sort of this, this Jewish-centric idea of Christianity where everything is sort of about the Jews. And, and so Paul's goal as a Gentile was to go out into the world and say, you're part of the chosen people too. God wants to save Gentiles too. Christ is the Messiah, not for the Jews, for all. For all men. So again, not all without exception, but all kinds of men. Does Christ intercede for Jews? Yes. Does he intercede for Gentiles? Yes. Does he intercede for the poor? Yes, of course. Does he intercede for the rich? Yes, of course. The powerful? Yes. Those without power? Yes. All kinds of men. We think that's what the context is ultimately pointing us to. It's this idea that God's plan of salvation is unlimited in the sense that he wants to save men and women from every social order, every tribe, and every nation. He will save all mankind. Not universalism, though. All without distinction, not exception. Now, before you think that this is just some clever word game that we're imploring to sort of save our system, I think it would be helpful for you to know that this is actually the majority of the way that this Greek word that we translate to all is used throughout the Bible. This word that Paul uses throughout this text, all, 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 it's used all over the New Testament. And almost every time it's used, it's never used in this kind of radical universalistic way to include every single person. Let me just give you some examples. Acts 2.17, Peter, this is technically a quotation from the Old Testament, but Peter is quoting it, so it's both Peter and Joel, saying, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. How many of you have dogs? Do your dogs have flesh? So according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit has filled your dogs. Am I right? He's filled all flesh. Don't you dare take something out of the all there. We should be universalists now. The Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. So every person you see that has flesh, they have the Spirit. That's the promise of God. Every single individual, without exception, the Spirit will... No, we know that this is not what he's saying. He's saying it will be poured out on all flesh, meaning all kinds of human beings, Jews and Gentiles. He's not talking about animals, and he's not talking about every single person. He's talking categories, and it's the same word, all. Another example... 
Matthew 10.1, Jesus gives this authority to the apostles. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Did the apostles heal every single affliction that existed in the world in the first century? No. Later on in first, or I think it's in 2 Timothy, Timothy had a disease that Paul didn't heal. Timothy had a stomach ailment and Paul didn't heal it. He just told him to drink more wine. He gave him a, a medicinal <laughs> a prescription. So the point is not that the apostles healed every single disease, that they were commissioned to heal every exist, existing disease, but all kinds of diseases, meaning they can heal cancer, they can heal viruses, they can heal uh, injuries. There's no kind of disease, every kind of disease they can heal. Another one. But woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These are the same words that Paul is using. And Jesus tells us that the Pharisees tithed every herb in the food offering. So I ask you the question, does that mean that they went around the entire world and picked every single herb that existed and tithed every single herb? Isn't that what Jesus said? They tithed every herb. Or do we understand he means there are different kinds of herbs and none of those kinds of herbs were left out of their tithes. I could give so many more examples. Jesus tells us when John the Baptist began baptizing at the Jordan that all of Jerusalem came to be baptized by John. Do you really believe that there literally wasn't a single individual left in Jerusalem? This is a usually, all is usually a generic word, and it's usually a word that is talking to classes. It's not talking to every individual case. And let me just try to make this case stronger. We can go back to our text. Later on, it's used again. Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Again, the exact same word there. You can translate as all or every, depending on context. Paul is telling us that in every place men should be lifting up hands. Are the bathrooms in the back room a place? So why are we sinning? Why do we not have any men in the bathroom lifting up holy hands? Because Paul wants us to pray in all places, every place we need to be lifting up hands. Or is he maybe not talking universally without exception, but without distinction? Meaning, of all the churches that exist, limited just to these churches, in all of those churches, wherever there is a church, I want men doing this. Not literally every single place. So, in other words, the word is just typically never used to describe some kind of exhaustive universal principle that does no exceptions. It's used to describe categories or kinds. God desires men from every nation and station to be saved. And that's why Jesus died for who? All. In what sense? Men from every nation and from every station. And, and, and this remains an important reminder for us as Christians. I think all of us have a temptation to kind of become insular and only pray for particular people or our favorite groups or to ne neglect to pray for really bad enemies. I think that was what was happening in the first century. The kings and the rulers, these were the most hostile people to Christianity. So it was really easy to, I ain't, I ain't praying for them. Paul says, don't leave them out. So you, we, all of us need to think, who are the people that we are least likely to pray for? Pray for them. Pray for them. May the Lord give us the grace to develop a heart that's more like God's. A desire to see the salvation of all kinds of people. Kings, rulers, every nation, everywhere. Now, I'm really tempted to end the sermon there. And I'm sure some of you would be very grateful for that. But we have a problem. Today is Reformation Day, a day when we celebrate 
the Protestant Reformation. And so I want us to sort of, through application, tie it into this theme. I want us to examine, in light of everything we've just discussed, what is our hope for an evil, unbelieving world? And the answer is simple. God in Christ. What's the hope for our world? God working in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that this is an important Reformation theme. First and foremost, we are currently enjoying the fruits of the Reformation as we speak. Because one of the many issues that needed to be reformed during the Protestant Reformation was an issue related to two doctrines. They're basically just one doctrine. It's just, it's like two sides of the same coin. And it's the issue of the invocation of the saints and the intercession of the saints. And don't let those words intimidate you. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, most Christians throughout the world believe in both of these doctrines. They believe in the invocation of the saints, which means when a person has died and goes to heaven and their particular church ordains them as a specially holy person called a saint, you have the right from there on to invoke them. That as they are in heaven, you can ask them to do things for you, invoke them, in other words, pray to them. And most Christians throughout the world believe that you can pray to saints. And the reason you invoke the saints is because you believe that they can intercede for you. So you see invocation, intercession, different actions of the same idea. The idea is that the saints in heaven can actually intercede on your behalf. They can take your prayers and bring them to Jesus. They can actually come into the world and answer your prayers. We can invoke them and they can intercede for us. And the reformers rightly saw this. And I'm not trying to be incendiary here. But this is how they saw it and we agree with them. This is an utter blasphemy. And our passage is a good place to start if you want to know why we think that. Our passage reminds us that when we pray, we ought to not, never pray to saints precisely because they cannot be mediators. The saints cannot intercede for us. Why can't they? Well, first, keep in mind, just from a broad level, that the Bible never commands us ever to pray to a saint or an angel. You will never see that commanded in Scripture. You will never see that practice in Scripture. Scripture is utterly silent of that practice. So couple that silence now with our passage, which very clearly identifies how many mediators there are between God and men. And how many are there? There's one. We don't pray to saints because the Bible teaches us, never teaches us to do it. And we don't pray to saints because the Bible teaches us there is only one mediator. But there's more. This text reminds us that Jesus is our only mediator. And, and the implication of that is he alone is the only one qualified for the job. It's a harder job than you think. Not just anyone can do it. Christ alone is equipped for it. Look at verse 5. Look at the emphasis here. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The text here is emphasizing his humanity, right? That he is a man. And it does this because in order to intercede for men, the mediator would need to be able to identify with them. He has to actually know what it's like to be them. The, the, the book of Hebrews is the, the clear case to go for this. So I want us to go there. So keep your marker here. But let's turn backward in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews is at the very end of the Paul's, Pauline letters. If you get to 1 Peter, you've gone too far. If you get to anything that isn't Paul, you've gone too far. 
Hebrews, and look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he has himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So here Hebrews makes very clear what I've just claimed. That Jesus could not sympathize with mankind if he could not identify with us, if he could not experience what we experience. So our mediator needs to be a man. This is why angels cannot in intercede for you. They're not men. Angels have no clue what it's like to be a man. They can't intercede for you. They're not men. They're not one of us. We need a human to intercede for us. The man, Christ Jesus. But you might say, well, okay, well, that excludes angels, but that doesn't include saints. They're men. Saints are humans. Well, that's because we're not done with our qualifications yet. The author of Hebrews also has made clear what kind of a mediator we must be. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Being a man is not nearly enough. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are. That's the end of the story, right? Yet without sin. Your mediator must be perfect. In the Old Testament, the lamb, the offering that was slaughtered, had to be unblemished. Any person who needs a mediator cannot be a mediator. Our mediator, yes, they must be a man, but they must be without sin. The saints are not without sin. The angels are, but they're not men. The saints are men, but they're not without sin. You see, angels and men are not equipped to stand before the throne of God on your behalf. They can't do it. And there's one last thing that the mediator must do. We've already seen it, but I want us to see it explicitly. So let's just turn one more time in the book of Hebrews to chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verses 26 through 27 with me. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So we've already covered that. Holy, unlike us. But then he continues why that matters. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. A mediator has a primary job of bringing an offering for sin. 
And the mediator cannot do that if they need their own offering for their own sin. So not only are the saints not sinless, which is why they can't mediate for you, there's another really, really big reason why they can't mediate for you. They didn't die for you. You've got a lot of options when you pray. You can pray to Thomas Aquinas, or you can pray to the man who died for you. You can pray to Mary. But remember, Mary never died for you. I ask you this question. Why would you want to pray to anybody else? Why would you even want it? Even if God made it permissible, just said, you know what? You know what? I'll let you. You can go ahead. You can pray to grandma. You can pray to your friends. You can pray to anyone you want. You know what I'd say? Thanks, God. Now give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. He's perfect. He died for my sins. No one else can say that. Just give me Jesus. That's enough for me. That needs to be enough for us. And by the way, this idea that a mediator has to bring a sacrifice is exactly the emphasis of our text. Not just in Hebrews and 1 Timothy. Let's go back and read verse 6. It wasn't just enough for Paul that the mediator be the man, Christ Jesus, the holy man, the one without sin. But what does he do? Verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's what a mediator does. He offers a sacrifice. He lays down his life as a sacrifice. And that's why if he wasn't pure, that sacrifice could not mean anything to God. Sinners die all the time. That's not a sacrifice. But he was without sin and he died so that our sins could be atoned for. That's what a ransom means. The word ransom is an exchange. That Jesus stood in our place and he took something that we should have gotten. And then he gives us something that we shouldn't have. The saints never made that exchange for you. That's why we don't pray to them. They didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. And that's why he is all the mediator you will ever need. Now, there's a number of things that people will say in response to all this. I I don't want to keep you here all day, but I I just want to stick to the the primary thing I almost always hear. The primary objection that we hear to this is people will say things like this. Don't you ask people in your life to pray for you? Like, haven't you asked people in this church to pray for you? So are you making them a, a, another mediator? Like, why is it wrong, if, if I'm allowed to ask you guys to pray for me, why is it wrong to ask people in heaven to pray for me when they're actually more holy than you and closer to God than you? If anything, their prayers are even better than yours. So why, well, how come I can ask you guys for prayer, but I can't ask the saints in heaven for prayer? There's a number of reasons why we would reject this line of thinking. Number one, asking a friend for prayer is not prayer itself, right? If two people go out to get coffee, we don't say, hey, I'm going to go out with a buddy and we're going to pray to each other. We say, I'm going to go out to the buddy and we're going to talk to each other. Not all forms of communication is prayer. Prayer is a unique kind of communication. I can talk to you, but I can't pray to you. When someone dies and goes to heaven, I can no longer talk to them. The only recourse I have to them is prayer. And why is that a problem? Because we believe prayer is an act of worship. Talking to you is not worshiping you. Praying to you is. It's an act of worship. Now, people deny this. They say that's not true. Why would we believe that prayer, that praying is an act of worship? Well, the reason we believe that is because when you pray, you are without even, even if you don't realize you're doing it, you are giving the one to whom you pray divine attributes. You are assuming that they can be like and do things that only God can be like and do. You are essentially then treating them as gods. Which, by the way, I'm running out of time, but I have to make this. This is not in my notes. Isn't it interesting when you look at the polytheistic pagan religions, how often they, they, they parallel prayers for the saints? 
So before in, in Greece, before you go on a ship, you're supposed to pray to the God of the water. Or if you are, are, are in a relationship, you pray to the God of love. If you're wanting children, you pray to the God of fertility. And you know what happens in all these different traditions with saints? When you lose something, you know what you do? You, pay, you pray to the patron saint of finding things. If you're about to go on a long journey, what do you do? You pray to the patron saint of mission and travel. It's the same thing. You are treating the people in heaven as if they are God. And here's why I say that. Because when we pray, when we teach people to pray to saints in heaven, we're ultimately saying that the person you're praying to has become omniscient. They can know all things. Why do we say that? Well, let's imagine for a moment that I was able to convince the entire world that praying to Mary was a great thing. And we're all on the count of three. One, two, three. Everyone pray to Mary right now. What would happen for Mary? She would be in heaven with seven billion people praying to her at the same time. Can she hear all those? What if we prayed in our hearts? What if I said, don't even use your mouth. Let's all just pray in our hearts to, to Thomas Aquinas right now. Everyone, pray to Thomas Aquinas in your hearts. Can Thomas Aquinas know what's in the heart of man? Can he know what's in the heart of man in every place, in every age? No. Only God can do that. We pray to God because he knows my heart. He can hear all people at one time. He's omniscient. He knows all things. The saints don't. At best, they can only hear us one, maybe two at a time. It doesn't make sense. Additionally, the saints are not, again, omnipresent. They're not in our hearts. We don't even have evidence in the scriptures, by the way, that the saints are even aware of what's happening on earth. We know that there's a general awareness. We have allusions in the book of Revelation that they, they are praying for the church, that they're praying for the martyrs. So the saints still have some idea of like the cosmic scope of earth. But we actually have evidence that they're ignorant to what happens on earth. Isaiah 63, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and though Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, from old is your name. Once Abraham died, he was no longer able to know his descendants. He, he's, he doesn't know his descendants. That means he's not communicating with them. 2 Kings 22, therefore, behold, I will gather to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So he's saying, your kingdom is going to be obliterated. But don't worry, you'll be dead so you won't have to watch it. Why doesn't the king say, no, I'm going to be interceding for him. I'll be watching it the whole way. They're going to be praying to me through the whole thing. We have no evidence that the saints on earth are even capable of following at a specific level what's happening. They're not omnipresent. They are not omniscient. And, and let me make this last and final point. The objection itself is just quite frankly not true. Our friends around the world who pray to saints do a whole lot more than just ask them to pray for them. Did that beginning prayer ask like he was merely just praying to Mary? Do you know what an indulgence is? The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there is something called the treasury of merit. That when all the saints die, they had all of these excess good works. Good works that they, they didn't need these to get into heaven. They, they provided more works than they needed to get in. So they take those excess good works and they put them into a treasury called the treasury of the saints or the treasury of merits. And when before you die and are, go to purgatory and you have to pay for your temporal punishment of your sins, you can receive an indulgence from the church. And what that indulgence is, is the church spiritually takes some of the merit of the saints and applies it to you and it shortens your time in purgatory. You're not just asking for prayer. You're asking for salvation. 
You're asking for merit. You're asking for righteousness. You're asking them to come into your world and help you physically, spiritually. You're not just saying, hey, pray to me. You're saying, give me your merits. Give me your righteousness. Help me in my life. That's more than just saying, hey, pray to me. They don't just say, hey, pray for me. They ask them to intercede. Give me your righteousness. Give me your merits. Help me in my life. Help me with my struggles. Let me read one more prayer to you. You tell me if this asks, like, we're just asking Mary to pray for us. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to thee. Come then to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. In your hands I place my eternal salvation, and to you do I entrust my soul. Count me among your most devoted servants and take me under your protection, and that's enough for me. Because if you protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing. Not from my sins, because you will obtain for me the pardon of them. Nor from the devils, because you are more powerful than all hell put together. Nor even from Jesus, my judge himself, because one prayer from you and he will be appeased. Does that sound like we're just asking Mary to pray for us? I submit to you that if you think Jesus is the wrath that needs appeasement, you are terribly confused about his role as the mediator. God is the one that needs appeasing, and Jesus is the one who appeases him. Jesus doesn't need appeasement. That's his job. You should have no fear whatsoever to approach Jesus. You should be afraid to approach God, and that's why he gave us the man Christ Jesus. If you come in Christ, then you have no fear. If you are afraid of Jesus and seeking intercession from him, you don't know him. Give us Jesus and we shall be satisfied. That's the cry of our church. That's why our church celebrates rather than laments the Reformation. However, 1 Timothy 2 was technically written before the Reformation. So it had a meaning before the corruptions of the Rome and the East crept in. So let's simplify the thing we've talked about to really get at the heart of our meaning today. If you were to ask me, well, what do I tell my neighbor? What are, you've talked about a lot of things today. We've gone long. What is this sermon about? That God desires all men to be saved through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the message today. That's what I want you to take home with you today. God desires all men to be saved through Jesus Christ. But because today is Reformation Day, we're going to add a little twist to our application. Paul made our application very easy, right from the get-go. Pray for all men because God desires their salvation in Christ. So the application is easy. It's pray for all men. But we're going to add a little twist to it for the Reformation. Here's our application. Pray for all men. But do not pray to any man. Pray for men, but do not pray to them. We give our prayers to God, and we offer them only through our sole mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. Mary, blessed, blessed woman, I can't wait to, cannot wait to meet her. She's not the hope of the world. No saint is the hope of the world. Christ is the hope of the world. He is the one who reconciles sinners to God. It is Christ and Him alone who stands before the throne of God, giving us a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name and love, whoever lives and pleads for you and for me. Save.